know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. This week we have Sarah Bessel. She's the Deputy Director at the Human Trafficking Legal Center, where she represents victims of trafficking in immigration and civil cases. Sarah also conducts research on accountability for human trafficking victims and has authored publications on the intersection between human trafficking and corruption, diplomatic immunity, and domestic violence. She also manages the Human Trafficking Legal Center's programs on trafficking of persons with disabilities and has some research there as well. So we have a lot of good, interesting things to talk about. Sarah has a background in international human rights and conflict prevention. Uh, She spent time in Cambodia, where she worked in the office of the international co-prosecutor of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Before that, she worked on international conflict resolution issues at the University of Peace in Ethiopia and at the U.S. Institute of Peace. That sounds so very cool. She has a JD from George Washington University Law School, and she has an MA where she studied conflict resolution from Georgetown. So she's also admitted to practice in New York and the District of Columbia. Tell us, first of all, what is the Strategic Litigation Project? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, So we at the Human Trafficking Legal Center are very committed to uh, connecting all trafficking survivors with lawyers and pursuing those cases where there is a strategic impact in combating human trafficking, both in the United States and abroad. Um, So to that end, you know, we have pursued cases against diplomats who bring domestic workers into the United States and force them into domestic servitude. But there's also a a facet of U.S. law that provides for extraterritorial jurisdiction over U.S. citizens, green card holders, or U.S. corporations that commit human trafficking and forced labor crimes and sex trafficking crimes abroad. And so in that part of our work, we do outreach to advocates in other countries and really try to target uh, supply chain cases and see if there are uh, viable, there's viable litigation in the United States that could be brought against a U.S. corporation that is somehow engaged in forced labor in their supply chain. You also have, um, which I think is fascinating, a database um, of U.S. cases. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the cases and you mentioned something off air about people with disabilities. And can you talk about that? Absolutely. So we maintain two databases. Uh, we have one of every federal criminal trafficking case since 2009 and one of every federal civil trafficking case since 2003. 
the civil trafficking case is available to the public. Um, so if your audience is interested in that, they can reach out to our organization for access. But what we really use that data set for is to analyze trends in anti-trafficking work and also do gap analysis. And so to that end, we did see a few years ago a trend in the trafficking of persons with disabilities. And we published a fact sheet on that. It's up on our website. Uh, and we saw that persons with disabilities were being targeted for theft of their social security benefits by their guardians, um, by their representative payee, representative payees. And then on top of that, they were forced into either commercial sex or forced labor or domestic servitude. So you saw um, a layering of victimization for this victim population. We've also used the database to put out fact sheets on the intersection with domestic violence and human trafficking. We recently put out a report on um, material witness holds and the troubling trend of arresting victims, trafficking victims to compel their testimony. So it's a great resource um, and we're constantly finding new trends and new things to analyze. And again, for your audience, if you would like to take advantage of that data set, we're happy to, to provide you with um, answers to your research questions. Yeah. How do people get access to that database? Where do they go? They can go to our website, uh, htlegalcenter.org. And under our resources page, there is a request link to request access to our civil case database. Um, our criminal case database, unfortunately, is not public facing at the moment. But if you do have a research inquiry into the criminal case data set, you can just reach out to us at info at htlegalcenter.org, and we're happy to pull those cases for you. Oh, my gosh. How long has this been accessible to the public? Um, it's been around since, um, since 2009. So our very, one of our very first reports on mandatory restitution for trafficking victims in the United States did a comprehensive poll of uh, criminal cases, and we had also been tracking civil cases. And so it's been around, it's been around since then. Wow. So when you started getting the information, you started making it immediately accessible to people. Yeah. So we really want to, um, um, it's kind of, we, internally we liken it to a, a mini Lexus Nexus, but just mm -hmm. for human trafficking. So really trying to have a comprehensive um, kind of data pool for mm -hmm. trafficking advocates and kind of cut out, you know, cut out all that middle work for them and do the research work for them and make it as wow. easy as possible. You guys are so helpful because it's been really hard to locate research on trafficking of people with disabilities and, you know, find those studies. But you have a database that can help people. I can see people using this for their grants, uh, grant writing contracts where they have to um, identify or talk about the problem and they can say, well, these many cases had people with disabilities. These many cases involved also domestic violence, those types of things. So talk about uh, diplomatic immunity and why is that an issue in terms of human trafficking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And we've been doing work in the diplomatic immunity sphere um, for uh, even prior to our existence. Our president and founder, Martina Vandenberg, has been working on that issue area for a long time. And essentially, um, under our, our visa regime in the United States, diplomats and international officials can bring in domestic workers under special visas. We call them, they're called A3 and G5 visas. Mm. These visas are tied, they're employer-based, employer-sponsored, so they're tied to their employer. 
And um, a lot of times uh, you see it's a typical fact pattern to see that the diplomats uh, use the, the imprimatur of their diplomatic immunity to coerce these domestic workers into domestic servitude. They take their passport. Um, they say that you can't do anything to me because I have immunity. And so essentially, we fought long and hard to create the precedent to say that, yes, while diplomats are currently stationed in the United States, they are protected by their diplomatic immunity. But once diplomats leave the United States, they only have retroactive immunity. And retroactive immunity does not cover the abuse of domestic workers. It does not cover sexual abuse and rape of your domestic workers. And while criminal prosecutions of, have been significantly low, we've found great gains on the civil side. So suing, domestic, suing diplomats, usually after they've left, um, receiving a default judgment, and then working with the State Department to, um, to pressure the governments, the host governments of the diplomats, to pay an ex gratia payment to the workers. Mm. Um, and so... It's it's a great it's a great area of work. It really is an, an intersectional approach. We're working with domestic rights workers. Um, we're working with immigrants, white. I'm sorry, domestic worker organizations, worker rights, immigrants' rights organizations, um, human trafficking organizations. Um, and we've, uh, you know, the State Department has, through the course of our advocacy, the State Department has started to um, institute check-ins. Mm -hmm. with domestic workers under the A3G5 program in certain select cities. Uh, so really to prevent this, this crime. Wow. Well, I think this is all fascinating. And I would like to know, and I'm sure the audience would like to know, how does one get into a position such as this? Because this is a very cool position you have, and it's a very powerful <laughs> position, and it's a very meaningful position. And mm -hmm. I imagine that there are advocates out there that want to go to law school or mm -hmm. are in law school, and they would like to do some, some of the cool kind of things that you're doing. How did you even get to this place in your life? Yeah, so I had always focused on human rights work. Um, I was, you know, from college, from actually from high school, I was that person in college on the quad with a clipboard each week getting you to sign a petition. <laughs> um, and uh, I went into conflict resolution and realized then I wanted to do more um, human rights focused work and so focused on human rights in law school and then connected with um uh, my organization, formerly known as the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center at the time, and um, was brought on as a fellow, a postgraduate law fellow. And then they couldn't get rid of me. So, <laughs> um, But I, I think, you know, something I, I do tell um, law students all the time is something I wish uh, someone had told me at the time was during law school and graduate school, um, my focus had been on international human rights. Mm -hmm. um, and focused on getting abroad and, and doing that kind of work. And I really didn't, um, I really gave short shrift to the domestic civil rights work in the United States. And I've since realized um, in the work that I do in my current position that they're really just one in the, they're one in the same, they're on a continuing spectrum. So for those in your audience who are interested in this work, I would really say don't discount the amazing, incredible work that domestic organizations are doing in the U.S. because the work that you're looking at in, in, in other countries that you think is really cool. I mean, they're doing that same work. It's just in the U S context. Hmm. That is. And so 
how when did you graduate law school? And because I'm trying to calculate how many years before you got this particular position. Oh, so I I graduated in 2015 and started as a fellow with the center in uh, that fall, fall 2015. So I am coming up on my fifth year. That's awesome. And so what does the future hold for Sarah? <laughs> um, so currently the future is, uh, is, is coming to you live from my living room for the, for the next couple of months, unfortunately. But um, I think we're still uh, uh, travel plans. We, I do a lot of uh, outreach to um, international organizations and that has unfortunately been curtailed. So we're trying to do as much as we can to maintain contact with international organizations um, we have, um, in addition to our uh, kind of bread and butter training and technical assistance work and our research work, we're also expanding into trade remedies. And so we recently published a practice guide on how to use the U.S. Tariff Act to block the import of goods made with forced labor into the United States and doing a lot of outreach on that. And essentially, you know, we are um, we're constantly assessing and evaluating um, how how we can continue this work. I think the the recent events of the past few weeks has really shown in the anti-trafficking community that the criminal justice system has failed. And we're thinking long and hard about how, where our work falls in that and then how we, um, how we contribute in the best possible way to, to that discourse. Yeah. So do you have any preliminary thoughts on either the pandemic that's going around the world in human trafficking or the Black Lives Matter movement and the work that you currently do or will do in the future? Yeah, I think we've been thinking a lot about it. I think on the pandemic side, um, you know, we've said internally that, um, you know, with the closure of, of factories and the canceling of orders and, you know, sending home of migrant workers that, you know, that it's really one of the largest wage theft schemes that we've ever seen in history. And we're all, I think, in the community girding ourselves for when when communities reopen, what are the heightened risks for very vulnerable populations to forced labor and trafficking? Um, and so we're, we're keeping an eye on that, very concerned about that. Um, and that's why we're starting to engage more with things like the Tariff Act remedy um, and working to combat forced labor and supply chains. On, on the domestic side, um, you know, I think there have been a lot of very thoughtful pieces that are bringing to the fore how our U.S. criminal justice system is failing in combating human trafficking um, and and how it's a essentially a racist system that does more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the TIP report just released yesterday had numbers that there were only, um, I think, 939 forced labor prosecutions worldwide. And we did the math and that's one, let me look, it's one forced labor prosecution for every 21,406 forced labor case. So you're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to be prosecuted for forced labor. Why, why do you think that I, is? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, it's, it's political will. Um, it's a failure to act. Um, it's, it's a priority focus that is not focused on labor trafficking. Um, there is, you know, there's a, there's a huge push for corporate accountability, um, rightfully so. And a lot of corporate entities are engaged in forced labor and supply chains. And it's a willingness to actually go after those corporations. So we don't necessarily have the answers right here and now, but we're working really, 
we're, we're thinking very, very seriously about, about where to go next and where we want the organization mm-hmm. to go next. And why don't you think that many people, at least in the U.S., don't focus much on labor trafficking? Is it a, is it a, a racism issue? Is it a corporate and money issue? Is it a combination? Is it a, a hidden issue? Like, or is it a combination? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a combination, and it largely mirrors the the global challenges. Um, you know, I think it's a political will issue. Uh, when you when you kind of delve in and examine the priorities of prosecutors, they are prioritizing combating sex trafficking, uh, and not to diminish the not to diminish that we shouldn't be going after sex trafficking as well. Um, it's um, a lot of times forced labor cases tend to be charged. Um, charged with lower, uh, l- l- lower charges. So, um, aid, um, uh, alien harboring or visa fraud, you know, so they're not actually brought to light as labor trafficking cases. Um, and I think just, you know, there is still a ongoing, um, like a, just an ongoing awareness raising about what labor trafficking actually is. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's, if they get charged with lower level crimes, is it the the prosecutors who don't know how to prosecute or is it the pressure from corporations and is it political will? Why, why are those getting charged so low? You know, I think, um, I, I do think it's because that it is hard. Labor trafficking cases are hard to prove. Um, the, 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 um, the burden proof standards are very high mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I can't speak for prosecutors, but, you know, just assessing, I think it's because, you know, they, those are the, those are the cases that they went, they can, they can win on. And it's, it's just harder mm-hmm. to prove labor trafficking mm-hmm. cases. I want to go back and ask you about something that you said earlier about the largest wage theft in history, perhaps. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, I think we we've just been saying just in just in, in general on a global scale. Um, you know, we in the early days of the pandemic, we saw a lot of um, of the shutdown of, uh, of garment factories in South mm-hmm. and Southeast Asia, and um, businesses canceling their orders, and as a result, not the the factories not actually you know being paid, and then having nothing to pay their workers and, and sending their workers home or making them work without pay. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an it's an ongoing question as to whether or not those workers, you know, if and when they'll get their back wages back. And it's, you know, it's incur- it's that's occurring in other industries beyond the fashion industry. So to that end, that's what we were, um, that's what I was referring to in, in, in saying that this might just be one of the largest wage theft schemes, um, mm-hmm. you know, that we've seen in a while. That's so interesting. And so, Sarah, where do you mainly operate? Are you in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we're based in Washington, D.C., and um, we don't really have any offices uh, abroad or in any other area. So we're, we're a small team, um, but we work really hard. And, um, but, and then where possible, uh, we, we try to get out into the field as much as possible to do, um, to do trainings and technical assistance. And so um, it's a little hard to travel right now, but for your audience, you know, we're always available to provide training. Mm-hmm. to um, pro bono attorneys who are interested in representing trafficking survivors in criminal, civil, and immigration matters. But then we also do trainings for um, a variety of social service providers uh, in, in the domestic violence sphere, in the legal aid sphere, in, um, in immigrants' rights organizations to um, kind of, uh, you know, 
train them up on on the various intersectional issues between their work and human trafficking to help them better identify when a human trafficking victim comes walks in the door. Okay. Yeah, I was, just, I was just about to say, we can't do it in person. Usually in the past, we would go out, um, we'd fly out or we'd drive out, but that, you know, we're still, we're on Zoom all the time. So we're happy to do Zoom, Zoom webinar and Zoom training. And where's your organization get their funding to provide this service? Is this service free? Yeah, so we usually, um, yeah, so our trainings are usually free. Uh, if in, in the past, we would, um, uh, it, we would work it out individually with the trainee as to whether or not they might be able to cover transportation costs. But at the moment now, we're all just connecting virtual. So these trainings are, are free. Um, we don't take any U.S. government funding um, so that we can, you know, because at times we, um, you know, we do monitor progress on the part of the U.S. government and we want to remain, um, retain the ability to be critical when needed. Um, and so we are mostly find, uh, funded um, by private donors. Excellent. And if people want technical assistance or training, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so please uh, go onto our website and there's a form you can fill out or you can email info at htlegalcenter.org to get more information on a training. Thank you, Sarah. Any advice for upcoming advocates that want to do this work? Um, I, I would say, uh, for new, new advocates, just breaking into the field, I, I graduated with my master's in 2008, right when the, during the great financial crash, uh, it was a dark time as well, but it, it does get better. So, so don't, don't lose heart. Um, and then, you know, I think just be relentless Do the, you know, reach out to everyone you can think of and just start talking to people and make those connections. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for the courage and the bravery. Thank you for not taking U.S. funds so that you can stay objective. I really like that. And thank you for this wonderful database that I didn't even know existed and for the technical assistance that you'll provide to attorneys and other people so they can be more effective in their work. So we appreciate you so much. And thank you for taking the time to, you know, be on the podcast and just good luck to you in your future. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'm really glad that we got this opportunity to connect. The mission of the Human Trafficking Legal Center located in Washington, D.C. is when survivors have lawyers, survivors have rights. I love that mission. I'm on their website right now looking at the fact sheets that they have, and they're amazing. One of them is trafficking of persons with disabilities in the United States, they talk about specific cases that have occurred and the trends. For example, 55 Mexican nationals were brought into the United States. They were deaf and they were forced to sell trinkets on the subway. Um, they talk about uh, victims of labor and sex trafficking whose SSI checks were also taken as they were being victimized. They talk about cases in different states, one of them in Iowa, uh, with 32 men with intellectual disabilities working in a turkey processing plant for 41 cents an hour just really illuminates what's going on with trafficking victims and disabilities. Other reports talk about domestic violence and trafficking. They talk about prosecutors or judges and court systems compelling the testimony of victims and how it's critical to putting traffickers behind bars, but how victims 
would be afraid or reluctant to testify and how they were treating um, victims as tools or instruments of criminal investigations instead of people who are rights holders and had legal entitlement to protection and support and remedies. So these reports are fascinating. They give you a lot of information in a short, very clear amount of time. So it explains a lot of legal jargon to you, but in a very clear way. So I encourage you to go to that website, reach out to Sarah Bessel and her team. If you need to see court cases, if you need answers to particular research questions, it's a wonderful resource. And the fact that they don't take government funding means they can provide you with objective answers and data. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.